Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. So what do I have for you today? Well, let's see. It's Tuesday, so it's Tuesday Blues Day. That's Rob Bluey. He's my Washington, D.C. correspondent. I get him Tuesdays in the first hour. And then Ken Bo is going to be joining me in the program. He's written a book called Shape by Suffering. And he said that this book is to show you how God uses suffering to prepare us for eternity for life forever in our Heavenly Father's house. It's a very uh, personal book as well, as he shares some of what's going on in his world. And the subtitle is Shaped by Suffering, How Temporary Hardships Prepare Us for Our Eternal Home. But for now, let's take 60 seconds and bring on Mr. Bluey. At Faith Radio, we believe in the power of prayer. We have a way you can submit your prayer requests and have others pray for you. Just go to MyFaithRadio.com and click on the link that says Prayer Works. You'll see a button that says Add a Prayer. Click that and then submit your request. You can also pray for other requests listed and then click I Prayed. Experience how prayer changes things through Prayer Works at MyFaithRadio.com. If you know God, he can bring his grace to bear on your situation, and he can take broken things and mend them and make out of brokenness that which is beautiful, but only God can do that. Real Hope, Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. It's Tuesday, and I always get a chance to talk to my friend and colleague from Washington, D.C., Rob Louie. He's the editor of The Daily Signal. Go to dailysignal.com to learn more about uh, the great website it is. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back with you. Another busy day in politics, that's for sure. It is. Well, today all the eyes are on uh, New Hampshire, not Washington, D.C., for once. That, and that's for once. Because, uh, the the first in the nation primary is uh, is taking place today, and uh, I think we'll have uh, some more clarity, perhaps, uh, coming out of this one than we did Iowa last week. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, going to be a nail-biter, it seems. Do Democrats seem enthused or a little bit depressed, or what do you think their reaction is? Uh, well, coming out of the chaos of Iowa, I think everybody's a little bit distressed. You know, I don't know if depressed is the right word, but maybe disheartened or yeah. displeased with uh, with with the outcome. Uh, the the fact that it, we had to wait almost a, a week to to have the uh, results certified, and even then uh, they're doing some recanvassing. I think people are hopeful that there will be some more clarity coming out of tonight's vote. And uh, and of course, these first two states are are known most for the momentum that they can sometimes provide a campaign. Uh, going into the much bigger events, uh, the Super Tuesday being one in March, 
but there's a few other uh, events coming up, a few other elections coming up in Nevada, in South Carolina. They could have the potential to, to make or break some of these campaigns. So I think the important thing is it's a time when Americans can hopefully get back to focusing on some of the policy debates. Uh, we've been so distracted by impeachment and, uh, and some of the name-calling in recent, recent weeks that uh, it's really been disheartening for me uh, to see us uh, losing sight of some of the real solutions that we should be talking about here in Washington and all across the country. Yeah. Rob, you know I would love your take on the impeachment now that it's over. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yes, yeah, so we have a president who's been acquitted. Uh, I think that, uh, as you and I talked about for many weeks, uh, that was a foregone conclusion. Everybody knew that was likely going to be the outcome. They weren't going to move 20 Republicans uh, in, the, in the direction. They ended up only moving one on, on one article. Uh, so my, my thoughts are that it was an exercise that, uh, that was – uh, largely a, a missed opportunity. The Democrats uh, engaged in this uh, purely on, on partisan grounds. This was not something that uh, they built the case for with the American people. I think you see that reflected in President Trump's approval rating. And so on that, on that note, it really was largely a failure. Um, at the same time, I, I don't think that uh, it, it's done anything to really advance our country down the road toward uh, – the, the policy solutions that we should be talking about. For instance, the president put out his new budget yesterday, and immediately it was rejected in both houses of Congress. I think that the, the impeachment has, uh, if anything, just hardened uh, both sides to the point where they're unable to accomplish much of anything at all. Uh, you saw that in the State of the Union last week in some of the reactions, or even some of the people who, who outright refused to go because they have uh, such disdain for President Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, Rob, I guess I wasn't aware that there was opposition on both sides regarding Trump's uh, uh, budget, which was, what, $4.8 trillion? Yes, that's, that, that's right. Well, so in the Senate, uh, here, here's how bad things are, Bill. I mean, you would, you would think that at least in the Senate, uh, where Republicans have the majority, they would hold a hearing to discuss the budget. After all, the budget is, is traditionally the kickoff of the appropriations process, which is one of the key things that Congress uh, has to do every year. Uh, then the chairman of the Budget Committee, Mike Enzi, has said he's not even going to hold a hearing. Hmm. Uh, and then you better believe that the only reason the House Democrats are holding a hearing tomorrow is so that they can drag Russ Vogt, who's the uh, the acting director of the Office of Management and Budget before their committee and probably ask him a whole bunch of questions about Ukraine and, and things related to impeachment. I mean, I doubt there will be much, much interest on the part of Democrats to discuss some of the budget items. So I think that if anything, you asked me, you know, my thoughts on impeachment, I feel like it's left us in a place where we're at gridlock. Uh, and sometimes the American people like gridlock. I mean, that's, uh, that's some of the, uh, the, the thinking behind why they may have put Democrats in place of in control of the House is that they, they wanted this. Uh, why, why did President Clinton have to deal with a Republican Congress during his, his years? Why did President Bush ultimately have to do it? So it's, it's hard to say exactly, uh, but what it does mean is that it's, it's a much more challenging environment to get anything accomplished. And there are some big challenges out there. I mean, health care continues to be a top concern of the American people. You have a president who's, who's promised to do something about it, but I don't know that you have the appetite in Congress to actually advance anything uh, that, will, that will make a difference this year. Mm -hmm. So when I go back to the president's budget, um, there is – I've heard rumors from the Democrat side that he's making massive cuts in Medicare and Medicaid, and then he, the president comes out and says that's just not true. So how does that, how does well, that happen? <laughs> well, this is a president uh, dating back to the earliest days of his campaign in, t in 2015 who has promised not to touch some of these programs because obviously 
this is a, a key constituency of his, and, a, and he has a strong belief that he, he doesn't want to change their benefits. But uh, at the same time, these programs are driving a, a, the debt crisis that we find ourselves in. This is, we're talking now specifically about Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, what they call the entitlement programs. Mm-hmm. And these programs are they are in desperate need of reform. We have been I've been at the Heritage Foundation for now 13 years, Bill, and ever since I set foot in, in the door here, we've been talking about the importance of reforming these programs. To find a president, uh, and I've now served through, through you know in, in in this role uh, for through three different presidencies, they're all largely afraid to to touch it. It's the third rail. So yes, the budget does make some modifications. Uh, I think what Trump is saying is no, he's not proposed something proposing something on the scale. Uh, that uh, maybe George Bush did uh, with Social Security, which got him into so much hot water in in 2005. But at the same time, of course, the budget is touching them in some ways. I mean, it has to. He's making making pretty significant uh, cuts domestically to try to balance the budget in 15 years, and uh, and the Democrats are trying to exploit it uh, certainly and 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 drive a political wedge uh, with with a constituency that the president obviously relies on for votes. And the president would like to reduce the size of government, and he'll, of course, be at odds with the uh, Democrats because they're just the opposite. That's true, uh, yes. Uh, and, and where you see a lot of the cuts, uh, the Department of Commerce, for instance, uh, has a double-digit percentage cut. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency has one. A lot of the – most of the domestic agencies all, all take cuts. Uh, you, see, you see a slight increase in the Department of Defense. You see an increase in Veterans Affairs. In fact, Veterans Affairs got the biggest increase. That's been a priority of this president's. Uh, Homeland Security received an increase as well. So, you know, there are certain areas where this president is, is focusing his attention. It's not necessarily surprising based on what you see him saying at rallies and other events uh, where he would where he would make those investments. But at the same time, we're still seeing huge deficits even after all of these cuts. And, uh, you know, this is a time in Washington where I think we, we find ourselves Republicans – uh, tend to make a lot of noise about uh, budgets and deficits and, and the growing debt when they're in the minority. Uh, you certainly heard it a lot under President Obama. You had a, the, the Tea Party revolution, of course, 10 years ago. Yet a Republican president gets into office, and uh, it seems that a lot of people are, are, are not necessarily as vocal about some of those concerns. The hardcore conservatives certainly are. But uh, other middle-of-the-road Republicans uh, may tend to look the other way. Mm-hmm. Rob, better than average uh, report on jobs? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, this uh, this is uh, great news uh, for for the American people. Um, I think a couple of numbers stood out to me, Bill. The labor uh, participation rate uh, went up. Uh, this is uh, the, the the number that, of course, during the recession uh, dropped uh, so low, and people were just dropping out of the workforce. They had given up. They couldn't find a job, so they had given up even looking. Uh, so the reason that the unemployment rate even ticked up a little bit was because you had more people looking and in the job market. I think that that's encouraging. Uh, work is really important uh, in in so many in so much of our, our our culture and our families and to provide for you know a, a steady income and give people purpose in life. I mean, there's so many benefits to it across the board, and uh, and certainly the the jobs numbers indicate that uh, that things are are on the rise. Uh, of course, employers added uh, hundreds of thousands of new jobs, uh, continued the streak going. Uh, and President Trump is is out there touting it. I mean, this is uh, this is what he pays a lot of attention to. Jobs in the stock market. You better believe there's going to be a tweet about it. <laughs> I can promise that. I can promise that. Rob Blue is my guest. He's the executive editor of The Daily Signal. Head over to DailySignal.com. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with Rob.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to be talking to Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. You know The Daily Signal. Head over there uh, after this interview to dailysignal.com. All right. Um, I'm looking at some other news going on in uh, with Nike. They're siding with the LGBT activists against adoption. I know there's a number of other corporations that have lined up behind them, but that is not uh, good news, is it? it it's not. Uh, well, uh, I think, you know, there's two levels to talk about this story. I mean, the top level is uh, certainly companies being more assertive in terms of taking political stands on issues. And Michael Jordan, of course, you know, made the famous comment that Republicans buy sneakers too, uh, which is why he wasn't going to engage in, in partisan political activity. Uh, but in today's day and age, it seems that these companies are increasingly doing so. Nike, of course, uh, you know, put itself behind Colin Kaepernick uh, in uh, in uh, shortly after he took his stand against, uh, you know, kneeling during the national anthem. So it's not entirely surprising to see Nike come out against this Tennessee law, but this is exactly what they've done. Uh, they and some other corporations are taking issue with the fact that Tennessee has said that uh, when it comes to adoption, if you're a faith-based organization and you have a, a certain uh, certain perspective on, on marriage and uh, who should be raising children, that you should have the ability uh, to work with those families. And what we've seen among the LGBT activists is a desire to shut down uh, those adoption agencies. Uh, It seems that they would rather have uh, those children uh, remain in in foster homes or other locations uh, because they they don't agree with them on some of their religious beliefs. And I think it's it's truly unfortunate. Uh, Other states have have moved in this direction. We've seen real drastic implications for organizations like Catholic Charities Bill. So uh, Nike might not like it, but at the same time, I, I think that as the governor himself said, uh, he is in the he is committed to making sure that these children find loving homes. And the bill that uh, that made it w- its way through Tennessee did nothing of the sort in terms of putting restrictions in place. In fact, it protected those agencies that want to continue to operate. Oh wow! So, Rob, did you get a chance to go to the national prayer breakfast this year? I did not go to it, but I paid close attention to it. Obviously, yeah. uh, last week was a busy week, as we talked about, Bill, and, uh, and the National Prayer Breakfast happened to come just a day after President Trump was acquitted. So all eyes were uh, on, on this, uh, this particular event in Washington. Um, and then did you uh, obviously you must have watched some of it or part of it online? I did. Oh, yes, I saw it. I mean, uh, President Trump made a grand entrance holding up a couple of newspapers. and uh, Seemed odd, didn't uh, you it? Know, it uh, what's that? It seemed odd, didn't it? It, it did, yeah. So, uh, in fact, we had Cal Thomas, uh, the nationally syndicated columnist, speak at the Heritage Foundation later that day, and he said that, you know, it was um, it was odd in the sense that it was it's really a nonpartisan event. Uh, it's a prayer breakfast, after all. That is the name of it. And um, my good friend Arthur Brooks, um, who we, we've, we've spoken to many times at the Daily Signal who has a, a great book uh, called uh, Love Your Enemy, uh, pulled from uh, the gospel, uh, the, the Bible. I mean, he, he spoke about reconciliation and forgiveness, and President Trump gets up, and what's the first thing he says is that he, he disagrees with Arthur Brooks. And uh, obviously the president did so in, in, a, in a respectful way, but I think it was a missed opportunity, and that's what Cal Thomas said as well. Uh, for the president, uh, who refused to shake Speaker Pelosi's hand at the event and, of course, refused to shake her hand at the State of the Union, it was a missed opportunity for him uh, to be the better man and, uh, and to, to put their differences aside, at least for that moment. And the, the, the speaker, 
has talked about at great length how she often prays for this president. And I, I do think that sometimes the president, uh, you know, maybe carries these grudges a little bit too far. And as somebody who is a role model for Americans, um, whether he likes it or not, I, I would like to see him adopt a little bit uh, of an approach more similar to what Arthur Brooks was talking about, and, and I think what Jesus taught us. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't understand protocol in Washington. I know that when President Trump went to the State of the Union and he handed a copy of the speech to uh, Vice President Pence, there was no handshake exchange at that point. And then he handed one to Nancy and turned. So you never really quite know if he saw it or not or saw it and ignored it. But he didn't shake Mike Pence's hand. That's right. He, uh, Mike Pence didn't extend his hand uh, to be uh, to be shook. Now, Pelosi did. And you're right. He may not have seen it. Uh, but there's there's no question. And then Pelosi, of course, did something that was terrible. She should have never ripped up the State of the Union. I mean, I, I think it was so petty on her part and so disrespectful. And again, she is a role model herself. Uh, and, and being in a position where she was directly behind the president, she knew that all of the American uh, viewers who were watching that and, and people all across the world would see that. I think it's just disgraceful to engage in that, that conduct. Uh, what I was referring to at the prayer breakfast, though, was the president, there, there were two sides of the dais uh, 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 they, where everyone was seated, and the president shook everyone's hand on one side, but not the other side. And uh, that's, what, okay. that, that's where I think, you know, um, it, he himself was then, you know, acting in a way that yeah. was, was on Pelosi's level. And, uh, and what Arthur Brooks was, was simply trying to say is, you know, even if you, even if you can't uh, truly forgive somebody, uh, maybe fake it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bill, uh, I'm with you. Uh, what what would what would Jesus want us to do? And I I really do uh, from from you know from the Gospel of Mark. I really uh, do think. Uh, sorry, maybe it was Matthew. Sorry, I'm getting them mixed up. But but maybe uh, maybe we really should uh, strive to be better uh, human beings and and set a positive example uh, for those those of us who who you know are are looking at our actions and and making decisions about how we own, we treat others in our own life who who we may not agree with and and I think we have reached a point where people have stopped talking about politics or policy and 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 have have seen their families frayed because of uh the tensions and, and we need to move beyond that we need to have uh these conversations again it's 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 really sad mhm if you go to dailysignal.com, you can hear a podcast that uh, they have on the website called How to Reform Journalism with Marvin Olasky. And I know um, that was uh, a very informative uh, podcast. Marvin's great. Uh, I had a chance to host him here at the Heritage Foundation, and he, he did sit down for the interview uh, with the Daily Signal. Uh, he's uh, an editor-in-chief who I look up to and admire uh, based on and his teachings about journalism. And I think that the big takeaway for me is, you know, anybody who thinks that reporters are doing objective journalism is is just fooling themselves. The reporters, you know, may claim that they are unbiased and fair, but everybody's coming at it from a certain worldview or perspective. And I think that's really important for your listeners uh, to keep in mind. I mean, certainly I am, and and I try to be honest about it and transparent. Uh, we do the same at the Daily Signal. We we say we're a conservative news source, and and I don't think the Daily Signal is the sole place that you should get your news. I hope it's w- part of your your balanced media diet, and that's exactly what what Olasky's trying to to say and convey that uh, the, the journalists need to be more honest about uh, where they're coming from. And and in his case, at World, uh, they have a, a what, what they call biblical objectivity in terms of how they approach stories, and they really base it uh, in large part on on the Bible and the teachings of the Bible in terms of how they tell those stories and what they decide to pursue. Mm-hmm. 
So the report came out, and I heard that Americans say that the current economy is is really the best since the 1990s. And I'm thinking of uh, the upcoming election in November, and the Democrats are going to have to figure out a way to completely discredit that economy or come up with some other strategy, don't you think? I do. I mean, it is. It is. The economy continues to hum along at, at such a great uh, pace. The stock market sets records. I mean, there's all sorts of great economic news. Um, and of course, if you look back to, to previous elections and campaigns, uh, Bill Clinton, the famous "It's the economy, stupid" line, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are there are you know historically, uh, it really does favor President Trump. Uh, at the same time, I, I think that uh, you know he is running somewhat of an unconventional approach, um, in which you know he, instead of expanding on uh, the, the the base that uh, they got him to the White House in the first place, uh, you know he's he's maybe taking a slightly different route than other others would have taken. And he's really c- concentrated on uh, the, the forgotten Americans, those, those people who have been left behind. Um, and we've seen changes in demographics. Of course, the suburbs uh, have shifted much more to lean toward Democrats, suburban women in particular. That's that's largely how Democrats uh, regained control of the House of Representatives in 2018 was through a lot of those districts that, that flipped uh, from Republican to Democrats. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this shakes out, uh, particularly if you have a, a hardcore capitalist running against a Democratic socialist. <laughs> There's going to be quite the contrast on display. Yeah, I mean, it's been a... a hard to believe that there's such an attraction for socialism after it's it's sorted past it 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 truly is and uh and particularly among somebody somebody an individual who owns it so much i mean who who embraces that label uh a generation ago you would have never even imagined that this would have been the case uh, at the time of the fall of the soviet union and and everything else was taking place throughout the world but uh this is the reality we live in today i think populism is is uh you know very much resurgent um and there are there's two types of populism as we're as we're seeing. And President Trump obviously call, considers himself a populist, as does Bernie Sanders. So, Bill, I I don't know. I can't predict how it's all all, all going to play out at the end of the day. But uh, but it certainly, uh, hopefully, will be um, an opportunity to have a robust debate about some of the issues that will will shape the future of this country. Yeah, Rob. Thank you so much. I always appreciate your take and look forward to chatting with you on Tuesdays. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Rob Louie's been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Head over to dailysignal.com. We'll take a short break and be right back. Pretty happy to have Ken Boa as a guest. He is the president of Reflections Ministries, and he's been writing books for many, many years. Um, first met him, I don't know, 1999. We did an event together. I'm sure he won't remember me, but that's no big deal. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Your book, Shaped by Suffering, this is a 
moving personal book that offers quite a bit to the person suffering. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, actually a third in an eternal perspective uh, trilogy, which I did not really believe knew. In fact, that there'd even be two, let alone three. <laughs> so it had kind of developed a life of its own. Yeah, I love the way you say this book is uh, will show how God uses suffering to prepare us for eternity, for life forever in our heavenly Father's house. The most yeah. wonderful perspective on suffering. Yes. So the whole idea of a perspective, because without a a context to tell us a, a, a story that tells us there's a purpose, an end, a, a meaning, a hope. Um, there's really little capacity we have, no resources to weather the awful storms of this transitory uh, existence until we grasp that what if we are, in fact, in a soul-forming world, then it changes the rules. Mm-hmm. And Ken, I know this is a, a personal book for you as well, because your wife Karen is suffering, and I'm just wondering how she is doing today. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah, it's um, she's gone through a great deal of adversity um, physically, and then there's a couple of broken uh, um, relationships, not her fault, that have been very profound as well, which I didn't go into. But as a consequence, I've looked at her own journey, and I've tried to make you know make some sense out of that, and to realize that. Uh, again, as I minister to her, I call her my bride of the new creation. And what I'm telling her effectively is that the, um, and I often say this, that the um, we are no longer defined by the pain of our bounded past, but by the joy of our unbounded future. Yeah, that's pretty, prof- that, pretty profound, Ken. Yeah, that gives a perspective, a point of view, doesn't it, that contextualizes, as Paul put it in Romans 8.18, I consider the the, the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. And then 2 Corinthians 4, the same sort of thing, momentary light affliction producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all, far beyond all comparison. Mm-hmm. So it's a vision, it's a purpose, it's an understanding. If I can embed my story, and really that was the first of the books. It was called the first book in this trilogy of Intervarsity Press was um, Rewriting Your Broken Story. And the subtitle there was um, The Power of an Eternal Perspective, because my claim was that the only way you can fix a broken story, and every one of us has one is to embed our story in the greatest story ever told. And that's a story that began well, and it will end well. And so now our narrative is broader than our own journey, but rather a part of this greater story that God is bringing about. And then that made me think about, the, well, if that's the power of an eternal perspective, how do we cultivate one? And so that led to a, a Life in the Presence of God, and the subtitle of that was Practices uh, for Living in Light of Eternity. So this this subtitle, again, uh, how temporary hardships are preparing us for our eternal home. So all three of them really relate to that eternal perspective, as it turns out. And I know this will be comforting to many, despite the fact that if you've got a debilitating pain or or you're suffering with a disease, it's it's always incredibly hard and difficult, yet there's so much hope and joy, as you talk about in your book. Yes. So really embracing um, the wisdom of the eternal perspective in our temporal arena, where we understand then that we're here for a purpose. And ultimately, the key, uh, the really Shape by Suffering was born out of a series I taught my Wednesday morning men's study here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I live. I have four weekly studies. We post all four on my org website. But this particular study some years ago was on First Peter. 
And it's the job of the New Testament in which every one of the five chapters touches on suffering. But the capstone, I felt, was the uh, verse, um, chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So that was my original title offering. I said, let's call it after you've suffered for a little while. They said, that's a little too uh, long and so forth. And they came with a far better shape by suffering. Oh, that's not bad, because we all know what suffering is about. No one escapes. Um, But you see, um, we're being shaped as hope. So what does that text say? After, it doesn't say if. Right. So suffering is not an elective in the university of life. It's a required course. But how long? For a while. Just a little while. I like that. Yeah. I like that, Ken. You know, so I'm opening your book, and I'm reading, and I'm in chapter one, and I'm not even two pages in, and I've got tears streaming down my face when you yeah, talk about your friend Barry. It's so moving to me. Oh, yeah, my gosh. It brings, yeah, it brings tears to my face, too, oh. because I think of the joy. You saw that photograph on the Charwell River. Yes. And my friend David Ryolhuber was with us, and the three of us were on a journey, and we were taking a course at Oxford together, and this was a, such a joyous experience. We were immersed in that beauty, and both of us, all three of us loved thing, all things C.S. Lewis, uh, Tolkien, uh, the, the Inklings, all those wonderful things. And here we're punting on the Charwell River. And when I had an opportunity to be with my friend Barry for the last time, and I knew it would be, I, I, I wanted to have three things. And as I go into that, I say there were three things. I woke up in the morning, in the middle of the night, and I knew I was supposed to see him as my last chance. I've had this experience now three times with people where I've had the knowledge, this would be the last time you speak to this person. Mm. And so in his instance, I, I, I managed to see him that day. And indeed, it was the last time. And there were three things. Barry, I said, first of all, we have uh, we need to make sure that when we go into eternity without regrets so we want to make sure that we did we speak our love did we speak our gratitude and was there any unfinished business and there was unfinished business in his relationship with his his uh, his former wife and so we 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 dealt with that and we and so we said you need to do that and that when he the next day he called her up and there was this reconciliation it was astonishing but then the second thing I shared with him the verses. I collected. I have a collection of verses uh, of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis because he loves Lewis. <clears throat> so I read them to him, and these are the verses, Barry. I'm going to read to you in your memorial service. That was strong, mm. especially. Oh my gosh, did he grip me when his hand gripped me when I'm looking him full in the eyes, reading him this these verses, knowing it's the last time I'll see him, mm. and his grip, his grip. Titan when he says, uh, are, you, are you concerned about uh, leaving this world? Um, there's, so, there's so many far, far better things that are wait for us in the next. But the whole idea, so I read those verses on this, uh, at his memorial service. And the third, what, what do you anticipate heaven to be like? You know what he did? He, he told me, he showed me that photograph that's in the book. <laughs> he said, I, I see you and me there in that boat in the Charwell River, and C.S. Lewis is up there in the front, and, and his brother Warney is in the back. <laughs> now, obviously, that's not heaven, yeah. but it's, his, it's, it's an analogous image, isn't it, in yeah, his mind's be- eye? What, what does he love? It's beautiful. And I think you were challenging him to finish well. And, that's precisely right. Yeah, and then when his daughter finally came to visit him, Ken, yeah. he had a moment with her, and, and, yeah. and she says to him, Dad, you're finishing well. Yeah, she could say that because it was a terrible irony. And all of us knew 
the fact that he had a thing called finishing well. And his ministry was ironic because he was not evidently finishing well. So by the severe mercy, and sometimes the grace of God is such that the awful grace of God comes upon us. And it's through that adversity that we come to come to, to understand our true condition in this earthbound uh, world. So that is what gripped him and, and grabbed him. And so he did finish well by the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Ken, what, what's, what holds us back? What is, why do we resist this? I think was for two reasons. Number one, we suppose we're in control. Number two, we suppose we're, <laughs> good point. That, that, that's a total illusion. And come now, you who say well, let's go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in. You don't even know what your life is like a year from now. In fact, you should say, if the Lord wills, we'll be we will live and also do this or not. Forget about a year. We can't even be confident about controlling a month, a day, an hour, a minute. So the reality is we don't control anything, much less than we suppose. The second thing, and this is the harder one, I believe we have to come to the conclusion that God knows has our best interests at heart and that we do not even know what that looks like, though we suppose we do. And therefore, most of our objections then come from our delusion that we have a better plan than what he has in mind. So we therefore push back and revert to the autonomy of self-control of an egocentristic world rather than a Christocentric world. So, Ken, when Peter, um, um, when we hear about uh, Paul saying to rejoice in our sufferings and rejoice always, what is the biblical perspective uh, on that? Is it kind of what we were talking about, that we've got this eternal future and hope? Yes, and specifically, for example, in Romans chapter 5, when he says, therefore rejoice, we rejoice in tribulation, not because he's a spiritual masochist, but no, knowing that what it's going to produce, he, what he rejoices in is not the process, but the outcome. So he says, knowing that tribula- tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint. And then he sa- James says essentially the same thing. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, again, it's not the trials, knowing what it's going to produce is going to produce for us endurance and maturity and wisdom so that we will be complete, lacking nothing. So both of them are affirming that the adversity is the crucible that brings about Christ's likeness in us. So when I ask uh, an audience, what are the qualities you most admire in heroic men and women? They always will say the same qualities. They'll talk about perhaps courage or perseverance or integrity or humility, um, things of this sort where they are tenacity, patience. And then I ask the audience, all right, we agree on that. These are the qualities we most admire. Now, may I ask you, are any of those qualities ever achieved in contexts of ease? And the answer is never. They're only forged in the crucible of adversity. You know, I've always said I would love the character my grandmother had, but I just don't want to have to go through the adversity mm-hmm. she went through in order to get it. It's an awful price that's to be paid. And so in this world, then, we realize if we come to construe this world as a context of happiness and comfort, we're going to miss the point. But if we understand instead that God is far more committed to our character than he is to our comfort, he's much more interested in our holiness than our happiness, suddenly the rules change. I don't know what my best interests look like because I'd have to know the future. Only he he judges according to the uh, uh, to what the outcome. We judge according to appearances, and we're systematically wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, God has information about our lives that we don't have. That, yeah, that's where we put so, our trust. 
So my big pushback is, how could you allow this to happen? Well, I'm trying to bring God down to the bar of my own diminished reasoning. And at the end of the day, I must let God be God. And, And here's the thing. I've never, never, never regretted an act of obedience yet. In all these years, never once have I regretted an act of obedience. I may have resisted. I sure have. But I've never regretted one. But I've always in those years, all these decades, always I've come to regret acts of disobedience. Maybe not immediately, but in the long run. That's a perfect track record. It ought to tell me then, even though it doesn't make sense, I'm going to press on because you've always been there. And you have a history, a sacred memory, a sacred history, a redemptive history that tells me <laughs> that life is for my spiritual formation. I'm here to be conformed to the image of his son in this soul-forming world. So when you hear people have experiences of extreme adversity and you, know, you hear of tragic difficulties people are having and they get on the other side of it, uh, what percentage can say, um, I, I wouldn't have traded that experience for what it brought? I think... Again, it's going to depend on their response to it. You know, the old idea that um, you will not be the same person after you go through uh, profound pain and adversity. Mm -hmm. You will either become bitter or better. And and so it can, instead of um, moving us toward more Christ-likeness, we could push back against the goads and as a consequence become embittered against God because we put our hope in something he never promised. And people make this blunder all the time. They're putting their hope in something God never promised. You can hope for various things, but never put your hope in anything other than him and his promises. Mm -hmm. Ken Bo is my guest, and he's written a book called Shaped by Suffering, How Temporary Hardships Prepare Us for Our Eternal Home. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with Ken in just a minute. Dr. Ken Boa is my guest on our studio line. He's the president of Reflections Ministries. Ken, I want to say the first book of yours that I bought was in 1999. I bought The Pursuing Wisdom, of Biblical Approach from Proverbs. Ah, yes, that was one of four books on Proverbs, uh, Living Well, Pursuing Wisdom, uh, let's see, uh, Wisdom at Work, and then uh, Living What You Believe, James, the wisdom literature of the New Testament. We're going to get that one back out. Sweet. It's gone out of print. So we're going to republish that in one volume. Nice. And then how many books have you written total? I don't know. I, the people, I actually have some people who are trying to ascertain that because it depends on whether you count a particular book and uh, if it's been republished and what variation. Yeah. It's, it's, over, it's, over, it's over, I think it's over 50 original titles, maybe more. I don't know what it is. Nice. But um, I'm about to publish about, uh, <laughs> about 10 more this year. It's well, bizarre. I have a publishing company called Trinity House. It sounds bizarre, but I'm, I've got this backlog of things that we want to get out, so we're going to crank some things out. It's yeah. Well, I just yeah. want to let our listeners know that today we're talking about Ken's book called Shaped by Suffering, How Temporary Hardships Prepare Us for Our Eternal Home. Ken, how can we uh, imitate Christ in our suffering? Yes, um, in, indeed, we are invited to do just so in second in first peter chapter 2 
when you've been called for a purpose that you should, uh, as Christ, uh, to follow in his steps, just as he suffered. And then he quotes from Isaiah 53. And in that text, he says he suffered sinlessly. Secondly, he suffered silently. And third, as a, a substitute for others. So your suffering is to follow in his steps so that ultimately then your suffering becomes rede- redemptive. So I claim that God redeems what he allows and that he uses that for uh, not only our sake, but also to use our life story and our message as an agency by which he empowers, enhances, encourages, and uplifts other people as well. So we, our, our life story then becomes something that can build and serve and uh, edify others. So I look at First Peter 4.10, it says, Use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Are we calling suffering a gift, or are we just saying that we, we can minister to others through our experiences? Yeah, in a very odd sense, and it seems like a very, a rather uh, backhanded gift, and yet it, it, there is a gift to this, because if you go to a first, uh, first Peter, especially, um, again, we could select a number of texts, but um, when he says the, the key chapter, and that really deals with this, is that when he says in chapter verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Remember, Jesus said, if they, if they did this to me, they're going to do it to you. But here's what he says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled to the name of Christ, you're blessed. So here is what he's saying then, that effectively, that um, those who suffer according to the will of God can entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And that's, uh, there's an extraordinary wealth uh, of insight in that text. Mm-hmm. Ken, is it, is it hard to, to try to... Um sell to the person suffering that there's there's great glory ahead as a result of this when really what they want to do is just get out of their current suffering yeah that's the issue uh, because they're they're more interested in fixing my problem than becoming conformed to christ so at the end again our not natural mindset and ethos is effectively the pursuit of comfort and so forth but um, I discussed various whys. There's the why of grumbling, for example. The why of grumbling does no good. It says, why are you allowing this to happen to me? And therein lies a lot of what we ask. A second why is better than that. It's the why of grief. And we see this in the psalmists. And they cry out to the Lord and they lament. And so this is why the psalmists are, the psalms are sent to music, because the music brings us below the waterline of our just ideation and into the heart issues as well. And so you have the whole range of emotions, from the heights of joy to the depths of despair. So they resonate with God, and they're brutally honest before God. So there's the why of grief is the second why. And the why of grief doesn't claim that there's no solution, just that my pain is real. But then there's a higher why, and this is where we're going, the why of guidance. Now we turn the why is this happening into a what. What do you want me to learn from mm. this? Now now we're getting close because now we're saying it's not about your comfort. It's about your character. What is it that you're trying to teach me? So I go from that then to understanding, guide me in this. Instead of changing my circumstances so much, I want you to change me. And it, Because if that's the way to, to the path of, of joy and greatness in Christ and excellence, it's so neat, so it is. But then the fourth why 
is the most rare. It's the why of gratitude. And here's the why. Why have you been so good to me? What have I done that I didn't deserve anything? Why was I born where I was born with this freedom? Why was I given this health? Most people rarely ask that question. That's the question we should ask. The film to see, Tender Mercies by, with Robert Duvall, a beautiful film. Why have you given me another chance? Mm. So when you deal with suffering, and I know this is going on in, in your uh, life with your wife, Karen, uh, you, you talk about this in Chapter 11 of your book, how... Uh, you're you're clinging less tightly to your plans. Mm-hmm. Indeed, because uh, the the plan. You, you, I'm sure you heard the phrase. You want to hear God laugh? Tell him your plans. <laughs> right. If you want to hear me laugh too. Louder, yeah. Tell him. Tell him how much you know. <laughs> so we yeah. know. So we're out of control, and so this is why I really encourage people on a daily basis to slowly, consciously, intentionally work your way through. The Lord's Prayer, especially the first part, because it's the in, the enthronement of Christ and the dethronement of self, and it needs to be done on a regular basis. Father in heaven, how will be how will be your name, your kingdom come, your will be. It's not about my name, my reputation. It's not about my my kingdom, my fiefdom. It's about His. It's not about my will, but it's about His. And so we have to move from an egocentric world to a Christocentric world. It's a paradigm shift. It's a Copernican revolution, and it has to take place on an ongoing basis because we have a way of taking it back. Mm-hmm. And I know uh, that you also can uh, co-author this with Jenny Abel, and she's yes. considerably um, younger, right? Yes, she is. Mm-hmm. And considerably she- younger. She's, yeah. one of, she's part of my team. I have a team of people with uh, Reflections Ministries and also with Omnibus Media Ministries, and she's an extraordinarily capable uh, young woman. And, of course, her struggle uh, is, is with the childlessness uh, of, of she endeared for many years. And uh, the good chunk of news, despite the childlessness, when this uh, manuscript was being finished, she found out she was pregnant. Yes, what's interesting about these things is how it fits in our own life journeys. 2018, when we were creating this book, was the most difficult year of my life. I shouldn't be surprised when I'm working on the Job of the New Testament. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, I so appreciate you being vulnerable about uh, 2018. Was that uh, particularly the time when your, your wife got the, the most amount of challenging news? Oh, it was more than that. There was um, a profound. Uh, there are other profound issues. Um, actually, it was um, a, 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 a cluster, a, a collection, a concatenation of of these events. That one thing after it felt like it was with Job. It wasn't one event. It was just then after that. Just while well, that's happening, another. Oh, but then another, and another, and another. And it's as though those things uh, began to come. And I saw that it was necessary because of the adversity, to forge the qualities that we're seeing. Because here's the alchemy of grace uh, that's described in Second uh, Peter, First uh, Peter 5.10. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, himself strengthened you. So here's the alchemy. It, it, God uses the, um, the gold, well, basically, he uses the uh, image of, suff- of, of glory. And so the, 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 the philosopher's stone then is this, is this glory. He uses that, and that, that transmutes the lead of suffering into the gold of glory. And so it does, though, in such a way that his grace then mediates this and, and redeems 
in this in our lives what he allows us to go through. One of the quotes that I make in the book is from, of all people, Aeschylus, who wrote Agamemnon in, uh, in this uh, ancient Greek uh, playwright, had this insight that was go, went far beyond him when he, when he said, um, he who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon our heart, and in our own despair against our will comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. That's an incredibly brilliant statement because, you see, it's not something we wanted, something we would have uh, pursued, but it comes, and it's the awful grace of God that gives us better than we actually would have ever requested. We would ask for much less. He would give us much more. Mm-hmm. Ken, just a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day to do this interview. I've been happy to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, Dr. Ken Boa has been my guest. His book is called Shaped by Suffering, How Temporary Hardships Prepare Us for Our Eternal Home. Now, I'm going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, the next hour coming up is with Beverly Canaris in studio. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.